welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. This week, coming to you from the Hay Festival in Hay. Um, <laughs> my name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with three other QILs. It's Anna Chizinski, James Harkin, and Andy Murray. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Chizinski. Yes, did you mention that these are specifically literary facts? Absolutely. <laughs> you did yeah, because it's a literary festival. Right? Yeah, and yeah. that's why I said it. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I thought you said it. So my literary fact is that uh, the first ever novel ended mid-sentence, um, and this is a Japanese novel called *The Tale of Genji*. It was written in the early 11th century, so probably 1008, I think. And, yeah, ended in the middle of a sentence. Was, had... was it like a cliffhanger ending? Kind like... of. I mean, not as melodramatic, but she's in the, a character's introducing another character to someone, and it ends saying, Karu introduces him to the... You never find out who. Oh. Um, and people don't know if that was intentional or if she just died in the middle of gay love <laughs> and got bored or whatever. <laughs> uh, I think most, most uh, critics think that it was intentional. I heard another version, which is like they just she just carried on. She was going to carry on and carry on until she couldn't do it anymore. Because it is quite a long book, isn't it? It's yeah, like I think it's about eleven hundred pages. pages. Yeah, eleven hundred yeah. pages. Yeah. And apparently, there's like four hundred characters in there. Yeah, is and it? none of them have names. No, none of them have names. And I, I read in one. Po- <laughs> How do you do that though? Well, yeah, it must have been so confusing. So there are 400 characters, and apparently at the time it was rude in Japanese... It's all about Japanese aristocratic society in the 12th century, and it was rude to refer to someone by name because um, it was thought as being like unnecessarily familiar. So of her 400 characters, none of them were allowed to be referred to by name, so they're all like, Your Excellency, Your Majesty, His Highness... Oh, so they still <laughs> had titles. Okay. Yeah, but, I mean, there are, there are 75 His Highnesses. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw it be like, Oh, what's he doing here? Said him. <laughs> She can... knew what he meant about him. <laughs> That's a very cool uh, way to end it. I like it. Yeah, it is. So she's, so she's a bit like a precursor to Tristram Chandy. She seemed to have interesting things she did with the form of the novel. Um, which, the form of the novel, which she had just she invented. Just... <laughs> it's a really bold new kind of novel, actually. Um... <laughs> so... She divided the convention that she created 400 pages earlier. <laughs> by there's one bit, so two thirds of the way through, she kills off the main character about whom the whole thing is written, the tale of Genji, just dies. And also, it doesn't really explain that he's been killed off. It's just that there's a blank chapter called Vanished into the Clouds with no text in it. And then in the next chapter, it becomes apparent that the protagonist has died. Wow. Uh, yeah. Does anyone know what the first ebook was? No, that's a thing where it's like there's a few different claims, but um, probably the most likely uh, it was a book called Uncle Roger by um, Judy Malloy. And you can still see it online. It's like all hyperlinked. And you go in there and it's like there's been a party and it has all the characters. You can click on a character and it gives you their little story and then you click on the next character and you do that. It's like, a, you know, choose your own adventure mm-hmm. books, those things. That wow. They, have. they were amazing, those books, weren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so good. Um, and so... Reading that this was like Choose Your Own Adventure, I thought I'd look into those. And apparently you can get adults Choose Your Own Adventure books. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, The two bestsellers that I could find are called Beer, Women and Bad Decisions. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Sounds good, though, doesn't it? It sounds like you're going to try and get the bad decisions, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like another pint or a prostitute tonight. (laughs) 
that how it works? <laughs> That's how most nights work. <laughs> uh, and and the, the other best-selling one I found is called Night of a Thousand Boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> Night with a K? Or... No, do <laughs> <laughs> So the first novel in the English language is obviously a different thing because uh, the tale of Genji is not in English. Um, people often say it's Thomas Mallory's La Morte d'Arthur, okay. which I like the idea that the first novel written in English has a French title. <laughs> so I think it's actually this novel written in 1561 called Beware the Cat, which is, I think, the main contender for first novel written in English. It's just by a printer's assistant called William Baldwin. It's kind of a horror novel about, like, evil cats, really. Um, it's about this, so this guy eavesdrops on a cat, and he overhears a, a female cat on trial. Um, and the female cat's called Mouse Slayer, for obvious reasons. And <laughs> she's having to explain to this court of other cats that um, she hasn't broken the cat's code of sexual conduct, which dictates that a female cat is not allowed to say no to any fewer than ten male cats a night. So if you reject, you know, the tenth guy, you're up in court on trial. Um, anyway, here's, over here's this. Um, at another point in this story, this first, first novel ever written, a priest slips on a cat and falls into a crowd. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Does he, does he slip on a hat or does he slip on a hat? A cat! A cat. Wait, wait. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. And he's going to be Googling a book called Beware the Hat later. <laughs> oh, wait. What can these guys do? Hats on trial. <laughs> this priest... This priest does slip on it, and he, uh, he ends up with his face in the bare arse of a boy who, out of fear... <laughs> what? What kind of an excuse is that? <laughs> I slipped on a cat! Do you think, I mean, they were the 15th century equivalent of banana skins. Uh, ends up with his face in the bare arse of a boy who, out of fear, had be shit himself. <laughs> First novel. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's the first novel? <laughs> so first novel in English. Wow. Yeah. So I was seeing what was happening in Europe at the same time as this uh, book was being written, um, this Japanese one. And in 1008, um, Bishop Burchard of Worms was writing books on canon law, uh, a book that he called Corrector et Medicus. And the idea was he would give it to the bishops and give it to the priests, and it would give them the rules of the penance that they would give out to people. So if you did something wrong, it would be like five Hail Marys or whatever. Mm -hmm. But quite a lot of it seems to be very strange. Um, <laughs> one of the things was, uh, if a woman had um, smothered a live fish inside her vagina oh, and, then, and then served it to men... <laughs> a, cl or... a classic prank. <laughs> <laughs> I really got him with the old vagina fish tonight. <laughs> He won't put cling film under my toilet again. <laughs> uh, either that or kneading bread on her naked buttocks, um, then she would get a penance of two to five years fasting on feast days, according to this book. Um, so we were on endings of books earlier. Yeah. So uh, the first uh, version of Hamlet has a happy ending, oh. which is nice. Uh, and it's called Amleth, which is Hamlet with the H at the other end. That's the sole change. Was the that age. some kind of like copyright law? <laughs> <laughs> Bad news, William. We can't do anything with Amleth. Wait a minute. 
Um, but no, a genius. And, and it's the same. And ham, uh, it's right down to stabbing someone who's hiding behind an arras, all of that stuff. Um, th- but then, at the end of it, he kills the usurper, so uh, his father's uh, brother, his uncle, um, kills the usurper, goes to England, marries the sexy Queen of Scots, returns with an army, and then becomes king. And then he has two queens. One is his wife and one is his mother, who was queen before. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's how it ends originally. I think they should redo it like that. <laughs> do we have it or we, we've just heard that it exists? I don't know. Um, just about uh, uh, authors who, uh, who sort of came up with something and then flipped it into something else. Uh, do you know how Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas started? Hunter S. Thompson's book? It no. was meant to be... And this is what he handed in when he handed in the majority of the book. It was actually originally meant to be a 250-word photo caption for Sports Illustrated. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted him to go cover a derby, and he started writing. And they were like, it's great, but we kind of needed a fit in here. (laughs) Can you say the same stuff, but in there? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Well, so they said, bad news. We can't put that below as a caption. So we've had to just give you a book deal instead. No, no, no. They didn't like it at all, and he had to take it elsewhere. And (laughs) Of course they didn't like it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Read the Mail Online articles, and there's a one-line description of the photo. You know, so-and-so turned up at a party looking nice. You don't want a 60,000-word novel there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, okay, why don't we move on to our second fact, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis went to a party dressed as polar bears. It was not a fancy dress party. (laughs) (laughs) What? There's the added shame of turning up in the same thing as somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tolkien and Lewis, they were um, really good friends, of course, um... Well, well, not always. Uh, no, not always. You'll probably get onto that in a few no, seconds. No, please, come. Well, <laughs> Wait, sorry, do we know the circumstances of a fancy dress party? Or is that just a kind no, of thing No, not really. Do? It seems to... I read it in a book. Uh, it was a biography of Tolkien, and it was like, here's one of the funny things that he used to do. He so used to... tantalising. Oh, yeah, I know. But he used to like dressing up a lot. Oh, did he? Yeah, he... And not even when it wasn't a fancy dress party, just in day-to-day life. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like, he apparently very famously dressed up as an axe-wielding Anglo-Saxon warrior and chased his neighbour down the road. (laughs) Um, So after they met for the very first time, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in his diary about Tolkien, No harm in him, only needs a smack or so. (laughs) So they they were very good friends for a long time, and then they had a rivalry later... Um, uh, t- Tolkien eventually they had, they had meetings uh, of a group called the Inklings which is a sort of famous literary salon in a pub in Oxford and they would read out their stuff to each other and eventually Tolkien didn't even go along to meetings when he knew that C.S. Lewis was going to read out Narnia stuff that's how bad it got he really and didn't it, like the allegory in Narnia did he, he? Didn't, he said that writing uh, an allegory which Narnia a lot of people say is and yeah I think it is um, <laughs> he said that allegory was a very lazy form of writing and he didn't really approve of it so that's what it was one of the things that the Inklings did um, would they, is they would hold competitions to see who could read um, a particular lady's work without laughing because she was the worst writer what? in the world she wait was, was this a particular writer or just did they find any woman author <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, because the way you said it, it just sounded like they were all massive sexes. Yeah, it's true. It did sound like that. It still sounds pretty sexy. It does sound like that. <laughs> um, so this lady was called Amanda McKittrick Ross. She um, wrote lots of, um, lots of uh, fiction, and here's some examples of things that she said. Um, she refers to eyes as globes of glare. She refers to legs as bony supports. 
and she refers to pants as southern necessity. Okay. Well, that one's got assonance. The first one had alliteration. I mean, this is like ticking all the literary boxes, as far as I can tell. Uh, Okay. She called sweat globules of liquid lava. Lovely. (laughs) That's great. This is a damn good simile. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the main reasons, in fact, I think the main reason, actually, that Tolkien objected to C.S. Lewis's allegory, and I just think this is quite interesting. It's not funny at all. But um, Tolkien was a strict Catholic. And um, he, so, for instance, he, uh, when they started at the start of the 20th century, even in Catholic Mass, they would start saying that in English. He would say the Mass very loudly in Latin in the middle of church <laughs> while they were saying it in English to make clear his thoughts. But he didn't object. So C.S. Lewis was an Anglican, so um, Tolkien, so he didn't really believe that um, the word of God should only be spoken through like priests and members of the clergy, whereas Tolkien did. So Tolkien thought that it wasn't C.S. Lewis's place to be telling people about religion. Uh, because he wasn't a member of the clergy. It was just, you know, it, right. it was quite interesting. <laughs> also, Lewis um, nominated Tolkien for the Nobel Prize for Literature in really? 1961, and the committee rejected him. Oh. And they only recently have released the papers, which because they have a sort of 50-year rule on the committee's decisions, um, and they rejected Tolkien, saying that uh, he was a bad storyteller. No. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> they said the storytelling here is just not up to scratch. Wow. Uh, You know that Lord of the Rings, I don't know if this is really common knowledge, but the Beatles try to option it to make it into a movie, and they approach Stanley Kubrick to make it. What? I think everyone decided it was a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Once they all saw... Yeah, but um, yeah, that would have been amazing. They were going to play all the characters. They they? were going to play all the characters. We could have the Beatles Lord of the Rings. It would have been amazing. (laughs) I think I've read as, like, there are so many theories about why it was rejected, and I don't even know why there needs to be a theory, it's quite obvious, but, uh, one They were going to do it, and then they were like, no, he's such a terrible writer. (laughs) (laughs) We love the Beatles, we love Kubrick and the Beatles, but, you know. The Tolkien thing. Um, I read one theory that it was because Paul and John were fighting over who got to play Gandalf. Uh, no. <laughs> no. That was what tore it apart. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Some things on fancy dress. Yeah. Yes. While we're here, um, there's a lady called Shani Christie who lives in Kent, and she has a phobia of people in costumes, um, which the newspaper article called metamphysomyophobia, uh, and she works in theatre. <laughs> so um, she said people think it's quite funny that I'm, that I'm working in something that means I'm around people in costume all the time I have to watch people get dressed in costume in order to reassure myself that I know who they are so she has to watch them get changed just so she knows it's not a, that's Wait, a fantastic but... excuse for being a pervert I must <laughs> yeah. say but also so she's not only got a fear of people in costume she suddenly recognizes them as the character that they're playing. Yeah, So like she's that. like at the Lion King, she'll be like, hey, Mike, have it's a good a Simba. <laughs> <laughs> Evacuate the theater. There's a lion loose. <laughs> Is that the zoo? It's me. Yes, me again. <laughs> Every night the same. Hello, Lemon Zoo. There are a lot of cats everywhere. <laughs> Do you say hats? No, cats. <laughs> Um, I want to know when people started dressing as really crazy things because they used to dress as um, 
sort of, you know, aristocracy or, or people from different ancient Greeks who would dress up as ancient Greeks or Trojans. Um, and I think I've pinned down one early date in terms of dressing as crazy things, right. which was 1745, King Louis XV of France had a masked ball at Versailles. So, and there were 15,000 guests. And um, everyone was in nice dresses and with masks. But he and several of his courtiers turned up dressed as clipped you uh, hedges. <laughs> I, is that you? <laughs> I think that's the year zero for dressing wow. as stupid stuff. And uh, speaking, is... sorry, just speaking of um, French uh, fancy dress, do you know the um, Charles IV of France, um, the story of the Dance of the Burning Man? No. Uh, burning Men, actually. Uh, this was a fancy dress party, and uh, Charles IV and a load of his courtiers came dressed as savages, um, which meant they blacked up. Uh, and they covered themselves in pitch tar, uh, and they chained themselves together. Uh, and then when they arrived at the party, one of the other guests wanted to see, have a good look at their uh, costume. So he went up to them with a naked flame, and they were all wearing pitch tar, and they, and they were all chained together, and they all went up. And um, I think two people were burned alive, two people died within days of their injuries. And it really, um, like, he was pretty mad to start off with, but that really tipped him over. <laughs> wow. Fancy dress is a dangerous game. Shouldn't do it. Um, wow. They got, Americans got really into fancy dress in the 19th century, didn't they? And they would dress up as uh, European aristocracy and wear. So it was like, I think the general consensus is, because people weren't really doing it in Europe, that America didn't really have at that time an aristocracy or a history of its own. Um, in terms of, you know, it didn't have a great nobility, it didn't have all these big families and so it kind of, uh, what was the, the quote, is it bought its own history and so people would buy like Marie Antoinette's genuine jewels and costumes and then go wearing them to parties and you'd go to a party with like 1,200 guests like the Vanderbilts used to hold these amazing parties in the late 19th century and it would be a competition as to who had the most genuine artefacts oh, that used really? to belong to a great British king or a great French wow. ruler or... Wow. Yeah, so it used to be a bigger deal than just buying a £10 plastic witch's costume <laughs> from the local Scott Mid. That's great. Um, polar bears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> polar bears were in the original fact. That's what yes, was, they were. Yeah, yes. they dressed yeah, they up dressed as polar bears. Yeah. This is just because I discovered, coincidentally, last week, that pollution in uh, the sea and in, in the um, seas at the poles is contaminating various wildlife there and polar bears' penises are getting weaker. Their penis bones are being Goodness. shrunken. Well, they say that, but it is cold up there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They really don't need that extra excuse, do they? <laughs> it's getting warmer, though. And oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so the female polar bears are going, it's getting warmer, but still nothing. <laughs> well, Bob, where is it? <laughs> You've been promising me for two million years. <laughs> It's the pollutants. <laughs> That's what they claim. They don't know why polar bears have penis bones, but they are getting smaller and they think it's going to do some kind of damage. Most, uh, most animals have penis bones, don't they? No, they yeah, don't. We do. <laughs> <laughs> most of us on this panel. Um, okay. no, lots of animals have penis bones. Yeah, Walruses. Yes. And... Uh, like in the Victorian times, they wore badger penis bones as tie pins. Yeah. Great. Have you seen a walrus penis bone? <laughs> I've held one. They're extraordinary. <laughs> Was it the walrus at the time? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when the walrus asks, just say no, Dan. <laughs> just say no. 
<laughs> I was at a fancy dress costume. This, this walrus. <laughs> okay. Hey, very quickly, this is uh, just to bring it back to Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis died the same day as Aldous Huxley. Hey. We lost two literary juggernauts that day, and it kind of really didn't register with anyone because someone else died that day, JFK. Um, and they just completely... No one actually knows they're dead yet, as a result. <laughs> yeah. right, so in the Guinness Book of Records for oldest writers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we need to move on, because we're, mm. we're really running uh, past our time here. Okay, time for fact number three, and that is Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact is uh, about Agatha Christie, and it's that Agatha Christie thought that Hercule Poirot, her most famous creation, was a, quote, detestable, bombastic, tiresome, egocentric little creep. <laughs> she hated him uh, from quite early on as well in her career, and she wrote an essay called Why I Got Fed Up With Poirot, and she really, really didn't like him, and she... Um, she wrote his death story in 1945, which was 30 years before she died. So she wanted to write it quite early, and she left instructions that when she died, that story should be published, so she would take him down with her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> genuinely. And they, she even kept the manuscripts in a bank vault. That's how much she disliked Poirot's character. Um, and then when she was 85, with her own health failing, she decided to publish it so that she would outlive him, I think. Is the, that's what I think she wanted to do. But when she did publish the story, um, Poirot got a front-page obituary in the New York Times, which wow. I think is, might be even more than she got. So Really? Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't That's know whether she... It's a news day, isn't it? it was the, it's the only fictional obituary they've ever published. Yeah. Yeah. And so even, even in death, he was really, really famous, and she, you know, couldn't get her way to properly knock him on the head. Was what? it front page of the obituary section? Nope. It was front page of that whole... Of the paper. Yeah. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. We say they're dumbing down today. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is weird when you hear authors hating... They're central characters. Yeah. Yeah. Like when, you when, do know, don't they? Like, um, who was um, uh, Sherlock Holmes guy? Yeah, Conan Doyle yeah. killed off Sherlock and then yeah. had to... Did, did, you, did you hear what chaos that created when he killed off Sherlock Holmes? No, well, I've got, yeah, I found a bunch of stuff. Um, basically, he just got... He, so he killed him off uh, and then all these letters came in which one began, you brute. Like, they just treated it as if it was real. Um, it's like the trolling of its day. Yeah, exactly. Just <laughs> to write a letter to someone saying, you brute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lady picketed his house. Fans wore black armbands. 20,000 people cancelled their subscriptions to the Strand magazine, which in, it was being published as wow. a periodical. Um, and, yeah, and then I guess he eventually brought it back. But that must have been a confusing time for him, I guess. <laughs> So, A.A. A. Milne really hated Winnie the Pooh. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's so cruel. Everyone um, hated Winnie the Pooh, didn't did they? they? What? All of his creators, A.A. Um, a. Milne hated Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robin. Yeah, he well like, he really was hated so, I mean, his life was kind of ruined by the fact that he was Christopher Robin, and he always resented, uh, I think that's... So, a, wait, hang on. Was Christopher Robin A.A. Milne's son? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah resented Robin. that. And the guy who did the illustrations, uh, <laughs> who was, I can't remember his name, but he said it, uh, uh, E.H. Shepherd. Ruined his life as well, ruined his career. Everyone defined it by Winnie the Pooh. Did they all have meetings where they're going, not this shit again? <laughs> <laughs> if only we could stop doing it somehow. <laughs> Another thing that Milne hated about it was that um, it made people think that he liked children. <laughs> and he said, I have never felt in the least sentimental about them. 
So, and he, but he did have a son. Yeah, yeah. who was yeah. taking dictation when he was reading. <laughs> Take a note. Kids are crap. And he had a very difficult relationship with his son, did, which kind yeah. of, you know, it seems to be explained by this conversation. Yeah. Um, so one thing you can do if you really dislike your character, this is something that Agatha Christie did. I love this. She put a version of herself in her own books, uh, a mystery novelist called Ariadne Oliver, and in the novels that Agatha Christie wrote, this fictional novelist, Ariadne Oliver, hates her most famous creation, who is a vegetarian Finnish detective called <laughs> Sven Hersen, who and she appears in six novels, this character who hates her, her main character. Um, and she, Oliver says, if I ever met that bony, gangling, vegetable-eating Finn in real life, I'd do a better murder than any I've ever invented. <laughs> That's a really good this idea. how much she disliked it. It's a really good idea of putting yourself in novels, and then, like, <laughs> yeah. and then the guy said, oh, easy jetter, idiots, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Everything that you're annoyed with, you can put in your box. Another person who hates your own creation now is Annie Prue, who wrote Brokeback Mountain. Oh, yeah. B- because of fan fiction. So she hates the fact now, so she was, like, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, she wrote this brilliant short story, and she says she wished she'd never done it because she's plagued by fan fiction now by people writing either sequels to Brokeback Mountain or alternative endings to Brokeback Mountain. And she said the vast majority of them are people who... So the majority of them are people who start their letters with, I'm not gay, but... <laughs> and then go on to give an alternative ending but where I've the two male characters end up together. I've written an intense, searing, homoerotic <laughs> series of... Yeah, yeah. And I've never written anything before in my life. And that's not the point. Of, yeah, yeah. Isn't that weird? Oh, yeah. It's just every day a more homoerotic literature from people saying they're not gay. (laughs) But it does... Yeah. There there are, I think, more than 100 sequels to Pride and Prejudice. And obviously it's been 200 years, so there's a lot. But in one of them, Elizabeth Elizabeth Darcy, as she becomes, uh, is widowed. Darcy is dead. And then she has to defend England from invasion by Napoleon in a fleet of hot air balloons. <laughs> wow. And I've never tracked down this book, but if I do, I am reading the hell out of it. It sounds so good. <laughs> um, we need to move on, guys, yeah, yeah. by the way. But if anyone... Does anyone have anything else? Uh, nothing that's short enough. I've got... Okay, I, I, just one last thing, which is I really like when, as you're saying, Poirot goes on the front page of newspapers. I love it when these characters seep into the real world. And uh, there's a thing I read that, which is the Met, uh, and all crime departments uh, in Britain, all the police, they use a national computer system, which is developed basically for major crime inquiries. All the British forces use it, and it's called the Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, but everyone refers to it by its acronym, HOMES. Is that quite nice? Very nice. And and there, as well, is a training program for it called Elementary. Uh. (laughs) Um, Should we move on to our final? Yeah, yeah. Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. Uh, So we've been talking about books this whole time, so I thought I'd find a fact which was about the enemy of the books, the television. So my fact is that before he invented the television, John Logie Baird invented a pair of socks to wear underneath your socks. (laughs) (laughs) And who who can say which history will judge the greater invention? (laughs) I'm not calling it. I just, I love that fact because I just think that's, you know, because if you look at the history of his inventions as well, prior to the television, he invented as well a, um, a razor which was rust proof. You could never make it rust, but it never ended up selling because it was made of glass and it shattered on people's faces and ended up cutting it. 
Okay. Yeah. He made, he made so a glass doesn't, razor. It doesn't rust, but... Yeah. But it slices your face but off. But it slices your face, your face yeah. off. Yeah. He made some pneumatic shoes that had balloons in them that he but they, thought... they pull your feet off. <laughs> <laughs> but just that's, that's his history, and then suddenly... The television. Yeah. It just makes no sense. But the socks were actually quite good, weren't they? They were amazing. Yeah, how did they work? So, so they have... Um, they're not designed to protect against moisture from the outside. It's uh, the moisture that your feet create when you're walking around all day. So they were for soldiers in the First World War. And they're sprinkled with a chemical called borax, which uh, absorbs the moisture from your foot. So you put it under your foot facing upwards, as it were. You put it on that way. Then you put your sock over that, then your shoe over that. And soldiers in the trenches swore by it, and it made him a huge amount of money. It's what let him resign his job uh, as an electrical engineer. Yeah. Oh, wow. Now, one soldier said, I find that bird under socks keep my feet in splendid condition out here in France. Foot trouble is one of our worst enemies, but thanks to the bird under sock, mine are in the pink. <laughs> Yeah, How big is that? just make an anti-German sock? <laughs> My other worst enemy might also be... <laughs> 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 it does rather, yeah, the worst enemy be in front yeah, trouble. That's a censored letter, I would say. <laughs> 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 been through the offices. <laughs> oh, um, he, but but he, he advertised them in the newspaper and managed to sell one pair doing that. So initially it was a complete failure. Right. And then he built a plywood tank and carried it around the streets of Glasgow with the, the bed undersock written on the side. And then he sold loads. Yeah. Oh, this was it. during the war, though, wasn't it? Yeah. So, like, a big tank going through the streets of your town during the war. People look quite scary. Um, so he, he made these socks and then he got ill for a while, didn't he? And then when he got better, he suddenly realised he had loads of money in his account because people had bought all these socks. Well, he went... That's what he was, didn't something. he go away? Oh, gone away, yeah. But when he, when he um, got all this money, he went to Trinidad yeah. uh, and he started up a jam factory. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, um, the local insect life either ran off with the sugar or landed in the hot vats of boiling preserve. <laughs> wow. I think I read. And so it never took off because it was just insects, <laughs> just full of insects. <laughs> Um, and so he lost a bit of money from that and then came back and then it was when he invented the television. There's, but when, it, when he came back, before inventing the television, <laughs> I think he had the sock business and the... Um, and the razor. The jam and the razor. Yeah. He then... <laughs> he then, he had 200 quid left. He was really broke. So he decided to buy two tons of Australian honey, cheap, and, start, and selling it uh, for pe- to people. And then he bought a ton of soap and he sold that. Wow. Then television. <laughs> then television. <laughs> Just like, complete out of nowhere. No, to, to be fair, the television thing was something that he, he really dreamed about making quite early on and he couldn't do it. So he, he had all these other businesses that went yeah. along the way. Um, so they were just salt. kind of maybe a smokescreen, those other inventions, to throw people off the scent. They absolutely were. Uh, in that, as well as uh, when he would just make these other things, uh, when he was making the TV, anytime he had a photo where he was showing how he was making the TV, he would put in fake objects so that no one who saw the photo could go, okay, so he's got that and got that. So he, oh, would, really? he would misplace. That's so cool. yeah, yeah. He would Wait, so you need... Okay, so it looks like he needs two tons of cheap Australian honey <laughs> <laughs> to get the TV to work. How has he done that? <laughs> Where do the socks go? I don't get it. 
You were saying about the electricity. Um, when he was working in Glasgow, um, he decided to try and make artificial diamonds by passing electricity through uh, a stick of graphite. And he put so much electricity through the stick of graphite that he caused a blackout over the whole of Glasgow. Wow. There's a weird coincidence in his life as well. Just one of those tiny things that's actually it's, it's quite nice when you discover it. Um, he went to school with a guy who was called... So this, and this was his classmate, his actual classmate. He went to school with a guy called J.C.W. Reith, who we now know as Lord Reith. Well, really? So basically, the inventor of the television went to school with the man who defined television for the BBC in England. It's an absolutely wow. insane coincidence. And he got bullied by Lord Reith <laughs> all the time. He just bullied the hell out of him. And Lord Reith's parents had to pull him out of school because he was just too much of a menace in that school. Wow, really? Yeah. Lord Reith was a bit of a... He was a bully, yeah. He was a bully. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Right. And to John think, I'll get back at him, I'll invent something that's so good, he won't ever be able to take part in it. <laughs> 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 He'll have nothing to do with it. I read... I, don't, I cannot believe this is true, that originally, uh, when the BBC sent out experimental uh, transmissions, which was in 1929, that John Lugubert had to pay the BBC to transmit his images. Right. Which is just so topsy-turvy. Well, because, yeah, but like Lord Reith, um, for as much as he's done for TV, and if you haven't heard the name Lord Reith, uh, in this country, most people have, I'm assuming, he's, he's the guy who absolutely defined how the BBC became the thing that it is. He hated television. Yeah, of course he did. Yeah. Because, you know, Wiener Baird invented it. (laughs) His salary was £5,000 and a mean wedgie. (laughs) (laughs) Just just on um, authors' early inventions and early careers before they did the thing that we know them for, can I tell you very quickly about Daniel Defoe? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. Okay, his early jobs, and obviously Robinson Crusoe and the Journal of the Plague Year, all these incredible works. Um, Before that, his early jobs included selling hosiery, uh, dealing wine, investing in a diving bell to recover sunken treasure, and harvesting musk from the anal glands of cats. <laughs> Did you say hats? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it, it, this it really happened. It was this. He, in 1692, he bought 70 civet cats for 850 quid because they, the Dutch made perfume using the musk which they secrete as the base ingredient. And he hated them. And then to get the musk, an attendant had to put them in a special cage so they could only face one way. They couldn't turn around. And then, I'm quoting here, um, use a spatula to scrape out the butter-like secretion that gathered in a pouch between the tail and the anus. And then he lost the cats because he didn't even own them. (laughs) He he didn't pay for them properly. He got the money by borrowing it. And then to keep them, he defrauded his own mother-in-law who then sued him like he was a disaster. Wow. But that was his, yeah. So whose cat? They were just wandering cats? No, they were owned by someone else, and he bought them with borrowed money, and then someone else said, no, I want my cats back. You can use them, but you don't own them. And also, where's their anal butter? (laughs) (laughs) Stealing that. I can't believe it's not civet cat anal butter. We're going to have to wrap up. Um, Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be gotten on Twitter. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. James? At Egg Shaped. 
Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. And we will be back again next week. By the way, thank you so much for being here tonight, guys. This has been really fun. Um, For those listening at home, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye.